that time of the week again. It's Flat Out RC podcast time. My name's Andrew Sill, coming to you from the land down under. And this is the podcast where we talk all things radio control. We're talking radio control, planes, helis, and drones for flies. We're willing to have a chat about it. So uh, thanks for joining me once again. Another good episode. All of them are good. Let me try to give you good episodes. Uh, Carl Bizon is our uh, special guest this week. Uh, on the podcast, a well-known name in the Australian hobby scene. So we'll get to know a bit more about Carl, about his model flying activities and beyond. Uh, so stay tuned for that. But before we get to Carl, don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. Don't forget to subscribe to all of our things, the Instagram page, the Flat Out RC YouTube channel. Get on board with the Flat Out RC movement now. Let's take a look at what's been on my mind. Well, the aero modelling scene down here in Australia is alive and well. There is a lot going on. People are still getting out there and flying all around the country. Hobby shops are selling out of products. We have our world scale team over there in uh, the Netherlands. Somewhere. I should know. Uh, Finland? Somewhere out that way, European way. Uh, and... Uh, Things have just kicked off as I record this, so um, early days, but all the best to everybody that's competing at the Scale World Champs. i tell you what, talk about some good models there. Um, and our Aussie team, you know, we've got the Melissa and David Law, Greg Lepp, Noel Finlay, Joe Finichiaro's over there helping out, I think, as a team manager or something like that, or Melissa Law. Anyway, I'll see if I can get one of them on to have a chat with us about the event after uh, once they return, but busy times for them, so... All the best. Hope everything is going well for them over there. Uh, a friend of mine was talking to me the other day, and um, he raised a concern with me. and said, I should talk about it on the podcast. I said, really? Uh, and he was talking about uh, beginner pilots coming to a club and being intimidated by other people, which is a very valid point. It happens all the time. And, you know, it, if you have ever been sort of the newcomer, into an activity, you do do feel like the odd one out, especially when, you know, there's a lot of accomplished people in the group. And when you go to a model flying field, the reality is that most people that are there that may be flying have probably done it a few times before. Uh, and so it can be quite daunting for a lot of people. And his suggestion to me was make sure everybody, you know, makes those people feel comfortable and understand the predicament that they're in, that it's just going to be a natural feeling that you're going to feel a bit inadequate if you turn up and you've just started flying and you're not doing too well and you know you just need a bit of help um and i think all of us have come across people that can be a bit grumpy towards that and i had a, a club that i was a member of they were terrible when the when a new person came along they were sort of like driving me out the front door, gate in a kind of way they were that sort of abrupt and rude kind of thing and and so we talk a lot about, or I do at least, talk a lot about growing the hobby, in, um, you know, encouraging new people to get involved. And part of it is the way that we treat other people at the field. So a little tip, just a reminder to a lot of people, a lot of us do this because I think we're actually a very helpful bunch of people. It's just there's some people that come to the field that might be feel a bit daunted and out of place because they're not as experienced. So just help them, um, encourage them because, you know, in a month's time they'll feel part of the furniture. And so... Uh, they'll feel a lot more comfortable. Oh, I've noticed it in even flying events uh, when I used to run um, an aerobatic fun fly event. The good pilots would get up in the air 
And then those that weren't at the same level would be, were too embarrassed to, to even take off. And so they, they were at the event, they were enjoying themselves in their own kind of way, but they went flying because they thought that everybody was going to be watching, watching them. But here's a little challenge for you. How many flights have you, do you, you know, how many memorable flights can you recall? Other people's flights, that is. You know, I saw Jace Ducia fly in China. That was a memorable flight. But after the fifth flight, it's the same thing. And, and Jace is a great guy and an extraordinary pilot. But it's the same thing. I can't tell you what he did third flight in or second flight in or the fifth flight that I saw him fly. Same with a lot of pilots. Uh, and when we go to a flying field, more often than not, whilst people, other people are flying, we're having chit-chats or preparing our model and whatever. So I don't personally, I don't pay a lot of attention to what other people are doing in the air unless it's something stupid that grabs attention. So that's the other thing. Don't do stupid things that grab attention. But And it's certainly landing. I always say the, the, the best manoeuvre is the landing because that's the one that most people will see because it's near you and you might be waiting to take off, preparing your model to get to take it out into the strip, etc. So that's, that's sort of the main one. But I don't know about you guys and girls, but I don't sit there staring at people's flights from start to finish because I just get bored of it. I'd rather be flying my plane and watching my plane than watching somebody else's plane fly around, even though I do like, you know, we like seeing good models, uh, but we're watching the model. We're not sitting there saying, oh, that pilot's not flying very well and all that kind of stuff. So just a little tip, keep the encouragement levels up for those newcomers, which generally most of us do, which is good. Uh, welcome everybody in if you're running Come Try Days. And that's it. I've talked a lot about Come Try Days and they're growing. The Truca Club's running one now. There's an extra one. I think in New South Wales there's another one happening. The um, Society of Modelers. What is it? That, that, there's a society up there. Society of Scale Models or something. I can't remember. I'm not, I don't have my computer in front of me. If I did, I'd be a lot smarter. I'd be able to check these facts, but I haven't prepared. I apologize. Anyway, just be nice to everyone when they come to the field to help them out. Get them back into the hobby. Keep them in the hobby. Guest time, my favourite part of the podcast, uh, and this week's guest is Carl Bison. Some some of us pronounce his surname as Bison, but I've learnt that it's Bison. Uh, Carl, I well, he's been in the hobby scene for a long time. Uh, I know him from his activities down here in the state of Victoria, where I am living. Uh, know him as a jet pilot. Know him as a, a guy that's been involved in the administration side as the um, VMAA state. Um, president, uh, vice president of the MAAA, our flying association here in Australia. So, uh, you know, dabbled in all facets. And um, I've always said this, I love this podcast because I get to find out more about people that I've sort of met before and have associated, you know, associated with, you know, and ask some questions that you don't normally ask or discuss it when you're seeing face-to-face at the flying field. So stay tuned. You'll hear all about Carl uh, covering his early days all the way through to Jets, of course, you know, I say all roads lead to jets. Well, Carl's a very avid jet flyer, so we're going to find out more. So here's my chat with the one and only Carl Bison. Well, we have a gentleman that's joining us on this week's Flat Out RC podcast, a guy that's been on my radar for a long time, Carl Bison. Thanks for joining me here on the Flat Out RC podcast. You're welcome, Andrew. Great to join you. Well, we have a lot of ground to cover, Carl, because you're pretty active in the hobby on various different levels. So we're going to try to cover some of those levels. But where did your journey in aero modelling begin? Well, uh, it goes right back to when I was, uh, I think, about 12 years old. 
and uh, I got introduced to error modeling through a very dear family friend who is still in error modeling today, a guy by the name of Ian Waters. And uh, my family and his family met when we both lived in Fiji for a period of time. Um, my father was an expat and we lived in Fiji for a while and we, we met the, the, the Waters family there and we both ended up by sheer happenstance uh, living in Newcastle. And as a 12 or 13 year old, um, I got introduced to control line flying through Ian and uh, the flying he did with his uh, two sons in a local park. So uh, I think I first picked up a handle of a control line model when I was 12 or 13. It was one of Ian's models that he, that he built um, and uh, he built for his sons and uh, I got stuck from then on. And uh, my first motor, I did a, I remember doing a paper run for a year to pay off on lay-by at a hobby shop in Charlestown in Newcastle, in New South Wales. It was an OS 15 Mark III that I actually still have to this day. Really? And uh, I paid 100, I think I paid $120 for it back in about 1976. Um, and uh, it was a year of paying it off. And I remember going into the hobby shop uh, in Charlestown every couple of weeks and paying some money off it. And the lady would bring it down and open the box and, and open the plastic bag. And I can still to this day, that smell of that OS motor inside that box. Yeah. Um, it's, it's, it's still the same. And um, so my era modeling journey started um, with control line with Ian um, as, a, as a child. And uh, I still fly with Ian today. He's a very active member of the Bandstar Club uh, in uh, East Gippsland in Victoria. Uh, he, he certainly started the whole thing, you know, many, well, I'm just about to turn 60. So it's, you know, it's, it's a long, you know, 45 odd years ago. It was a long, long time ago. So that was my journey, was picking up a control line handle and it's just it's going to run away from me. Well, yeah, you, uh, you ended up releasing the handle and getting into radio control. So uh, what was that first model, though, that you built? Did you build your first you know, radio control model and put that OS-15 in it, or was it? Yeah, I, I did, actually. No, it was, a, uh, it was an Aeroflight glider that I bought from a guy called Paul Dewhurst who ran a hobby shop in Newcastle in Toronto at the time. And it was a power pod that went on top of, uh, of an Aeroflight glider. Oh. Um, and he actually sold me my first radio, which was a Sanwire two-channel radio. I couldn't afford anything uh, other than that for quite a while. Um, so I flew two-channel gliders, and I learned to fly uh, on the slope um, at a place called Dudley in Newcastle, where I grew up. And uh, it was gliders for a long time because that's all I could afford was this uh, dry cell Sanwire two-channel radio, which was a lot of money in those days. I mean, you know, we were a very ordinary working-class family, and Pocket money was all about, you know, earning money from jobs and doing paper runs and so on. So everything was saved for. And um, I certainly didn't get my first multi-channel radio, um, which was a high-tech Challenger 720 Gold radio, which was my first real um, multi-channel radio. I didn't get that till I was in my twenties. So, um, you know, it was a, it was a, you know the first ten years was a lot of control line and the occasional two-channel glider. Um, and just looking to Ian with envy, he had those, you know, Fataba, those sort of beige-coloured Fataba radios back in the day. And, uh, you know, but so, you know, radio didn't really start till my 20s because, you know, um, we, I just didn't have money. Um, but um, Control Line certainly absorbed my childhood 
uh, I used to fly in the Hunter Valley Champs. So I used to fly, you know, slow combat and Goodyear and um, with, you know, a bunch of lovely blokes. We used to camp up at Musselbrook and, and I think there's still a veterans gathering there every year now. Um, but, you know, it was um, it was quite the scene back then. Um, and we used to fly a control line ultimately as a club in the back of a, a high school called Gateshead High School in Newcastle. And uh, we used to catch the bus there with a plane under my arm and a little toolbox and mm-hmm. we used to go and fly with a few friends and catch the bus back home. It's def- it's definitely a different era back then, isn't it, when you compare it to what we do nowadays, even if you're a, oh, a, a, a kid getting into it. Oh, exactly. And if you see that, you know what I fly now and you sort of think of my journey from a Sandwire 2 channel dry cell radio to, you know, the sort of turbines and turboprops and stuff that I fly now and the, and the level, relative level of investment is just a little bit different. But the fun is still there. Like, it, the joy is still there. I still fly control line from time to time. You know, I still have control line kits, you know, buried away that I'm going to build one day when I retire and i still got a drawers full of control line motors and I still have multiple sailplanes. And so, you know, the, the passion for the hobby has been there since prior to girls and puberty and there's... Oh well, I, I was going to touch on that point because you know it, it's the, I do this social study I call it Carl, and so you know often a lot of us and a lot of people that I've spoken to started when they were young, you know that ten twelve kind of age bracket. When you headed sort of towards those teenage years, end of school, did you did you have a break from the hobby at all? Or yes, yes, yeah. No, can I, I just did. guess I what it was? I, I I call it wine, women, and song. Um, did you happen to get into cars and, and you know? No, it was motorbikes. Ah, uh, see? It's, <laughs> it's something with an engine. Yeah, no, it was, it was, it was probably motorbikes took over for a, for a few years. And then, you know, we got married and, you know, there's there's not a lot of money when you get married. You know, I think my, my first um, job was, I think I was earning $96 a week in the hand for a week's uh, work as a trainee mechanical engineer. So, you know, things were pretty sparse. And um, my motorbike was... Transport because I certainly couldn't afford a car, and uh, and again I give credit to Ian Waters. He helped me a lot as I as I you know got motorbikes registered and kept them on the road. Um, and then you know through early marriage I sort of you know um, we had to we just had to pull ahead in for a couple of years, and then my wife actually got quite involved with me uh, with the club. Um, um, I was um, uh, the secretary of a club called NACA or NACA in Newcastle, and my wife was the treasurer. And, you know, that kind of got me involved in administration of clubs in, in you know, we were in our 20s and uh, I think it was before kids. Um, and, uh, you know, so she was, you know, she was very supportive through those years and, you know, and I suppose that's, you know, where my involvement in administration um, of clubs and ultimate associations at the national level sort of started on from that. But, you know, we we lived, we moved in, moved to Tamworth for a while, and we ran the New South Wales State Control Line Championships in Tamworth. I think it was about 1990, uh, and my wife was very heavily involved in helping be a mess of that. So, you know, despite the fact that we you know didn't have two cents to rub together, she was very supportive, and she would come to the field. And I mean, I, I remember one day she flew one of my old timers and just handed me the transmitter and said, "I just don't get it." Um, she, she said, "I'll happily happily come and spend the day with you, but I don't get it. Not interested." So, um, but no, it's, it's been, a, it's, you know, apart from a short period in my, you know, late teens, early twenties, when, you know, when it just wasn't going to happen for a bunch of reasons, um, it's been with me, it's been with me my whole life. Okay. then let's look at the progression into radio control. What sparked that besides earning a bit more money to afford to buy a four channel radio? Um, it, it's back in my flying days in Newcastle, watching, 
a guy called Paul Dewhurst, is, who unfortunately is no longer with us, but we used to fly at this high school in, in Newcastle called Gateshead High. And I remember seeing Paul fly a thing called a Telemaster, which I think you can still buy as a kid. Um, and a Telemaster is a typical high wing, flat bottom um, um, powered model. But here I watched him to fly around and around in circles and do inward and outward figure eights. And, and I just, how cool is that? You know, that's that's got to be the best thing. Um, and that's really what started the, the bug, you know. And and it's, you know, there's always something that gets you. Um, and, you know, I watched um, a guy called Reg Tao, who still flies today, fly the control line pattern as a 16-year-old. And I thought that that control line stunt's got to be the pinnacle of control line. And I ended up flying control line stunts. So there's, you know, there's a, there's a whole bunch of people through your aero modelling career that inspire you to do different things. And... Um, you know, you see some things and think, "Oh my God, that's cool! I wish I could. I wish I could actually do that." And um, and ultimately, you get to a stage in, particularly in radio and also in control line, where you, you don't actually you don't actually think about what you're doing with the transmitter at all. I mean, I often say to people, "You sort of fly through your eyes. You know, you just see what's going on, and your, your hands intuitively just know what to do." And and I think that the joy of the hobby or the sport is that at a certain level of proficiency, you can fly anything. You know, you can. Once you master, you know, the art of flying, you can, you can fly anything. It's just whatever kind of floats your boat. That is true. Now, when you got into radio control and let's just, you know, you, well, first, what was the first radio control model that you flew? Like, you know, powered plane, not a glider. Uh, if I remember, it was a Great Plains Ultra Sport 40 and, uh, uh, and it had a very old, OS 40 in it that I swear had about 2,000 tank falls by the time I finally retired. And I remember just doing circuits, doing and doing endless circuits and practicing and practicing um, approaches and landings. Um, and I, and that that was probably one of those models that I will never ever forget. Um, and God knows how many how many flights I had on it. It would be hundreds and hundreds, I would think. Did you take to it okay? Because these are pre-simulators and all that kind of stuff. No, oh, no, I had my fair share of, of crashes. I mean, I, I finally got my gold wings um, from my instructor at the time, was a guy called Rob Gilmore, um, who, again, unfortunately, is no longer with us in Newcastle. Um, and um, I, I struggled. Um, I struggled um, coming towards myself on approach as a, as a, as a young student. And um, I remember Rob just yelling at me, stick to the low wing, stick to the low wing, which is what I, you know, always use to try and work out what the hell I was going to do. But, no, I had... I had my fair share of traumas, but but back in the days, I mean, this was pre-ARF, so if you busted it, you had to fix it. And um, you know, I'm a, you know, it, from my from my era in the sport, you're a scratch builder. I mean, I'm not saying I'm a I'm a perfect scratch builder, but that's how we started. So, you know, I had my fair share of disasters and my fair shares of of hours in the in my bedroom or in the basement, um, fixing them back up again. But it was, you know, it was sort of that era. It was. You know, there were no memories, you know, in, in radio transmitters. You know, you, everything was manually trimmed. I remember I got my first JR transmitter that had digital trims and I just couldn't believe the fact that, that it actually memorised your trims. You know, we was I used to fly seven or eight planes off one transmitter and it, you had to manually trim every single one of them because um, you just used the same transmitter for every single plane and whatever you turned on is whatever you controlled. Do you know what? I've never thought of that. If you had one transmitter for multiple planes, it didn't have like Oh, absolutely, mate. Yeah. yeah. 
but you, you'd you'd actually trim a model and land it. And if you had two clicks of right trim, you'd pop the clevis and wind the clevis in until you could fly it with zero trims. And that way you could just pick up any light or any powered model because there was no memories. There were absolutely no memories. And it, well, all the trims were mechanical. Yeah. So, um, yeah. In fact, one of the frightening things I did with my with my um, Samla radio was in the airborne at the time. Someone published how to put dual rates on a transmitter. And you, you basically went to Radio Shack or Tandy or whatever it was at the time and bought two potentiometers and two switches and it showed you how to open the back of your transmitter and then solder some wires with a switch where you actually had your own dual rates. And I remember never being so terrified in my life as to opening the back of that semi transmitter and drilling holes in the top of it and putting the switches in the top to have dual rates on, on both of those controls. I thought, I thought I was going to bust it for sure. And sure enough, it worked. It was, and that was an absolute revel, revelation actually having dual rates, you know, because there were in those days, Andrew, there were no, there were no, there was no expo. There was no nothing, you know, no. But, you, you you learned to fly, mate. That's it. Then if if you wanted if you wanted less travel, you landed and you popped the clevis onto a different hole on the on the horn and away and took off again. That's how you flew. Yeah, life was simple back then. We didn't have to flick buttons. Yeah, there. but in a way, like it, 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 I always say, everything in the hobby's become easier nowadays. It has. You know, there's no doubt about that. Yeah. No, and and I think you know, relative relatively, so much more affordable. Relatively, yes. yes. Oh, you know, yeah. it was. It was, you know, and I'm, I know we were earning less and things cost more, but it, it just seems these days that, you know, relative affordability is is at an all-time, you know, high that you can get a lot of model for money these days. Well, I think that's why most of us have got copious amounts of models sitting in our sheds that probably we don't Correct. need, but we just keep on getting another one. <laughs> Now, okay, so when you so you learn how to fly and that kind of thing, did you have a particular direction of model that you were going towards, or was it a bit of everything? No, I think I, I think when I um, when I sort of was doing both control line and radio, my radio was very much headed towards gliders, and um, I joined the League of Silent Flight at the time LSF, and the LSF had various levels of attainment, and that was you know it was it was always a um, a goal of mine to get to you know high up the LSF levels, and I think if I remember, I got to LSF level three um, before. I, for some reason, I just sort of moved away from gliders, but I used to do a lot of um, thermal and F three B type glider events, and um, it was it was always a great source of, of of achievement flying gliders because you know you were you had a very strong intuition for thermals and lift and wind and you know, spot landings and those sorts of things. Um, and at the time, I didn't have a lot of money for motors and, you know, complex um, complex planes. So gliders was a, a nice economical way of doing it. Things like a bird of time and a F3B model called a model hob Lanero, which probably no one will remember. It was a Spanish company. I had a um, Southern Sail Plains Ricochet that I used to fly off the slope and just the classic stuff from the day that was, that was around. I was going to say the classic stuff because uh, all those names sort of it's the first well that that Spanish model I hadn't heard of but but all those other names were just like everybody knew those models back back then exactly you know? yeah and yep. and and oh, I love I love ricochet so I think they're one of the the, the the best looking gliders that was ever made is you know, absolutely and I, and that was my youth as well looking at the ricochet going I oh, imagine if I could afford to get one of those how would I build it yeah. yeah. Uh, and the slope was great. I mean, slope soaring was a was a lot of fun. And you know, we stopped slope soaring as a bunch of guys probably only probably four or five years back. But um, you know, we used to go to um, 
you know, at the Campbellfield, not Campbellfield, at Camperdown, I mean, and, and go slope soaring there. And it was just, it was such a social thing, you know, and, and that's the thing about modelling. It's as much a social activity as it's a flying activity. But, um, you know, the fun we've had standing on a slope, you know, chucking gliders off and wondering if you're ever going to get them back, you know. Um, and, you know, growing up as a kid, throwing one off the cliff at Dudley over the ocean. I mean, you, I used to literally throw my ricochet over the ocean and, and you know, if, it, if the wind stopped or it turned pear-shaped, like, you were never seeing it ever again. And I actually used to land it in the lantana, have to climb in and go and get it, you know. So it's just, it's all good fun. It's just, it's just great memories from a long, long time ago. Well, as I always say, life is just about making memories because that's all we've got. And um, you've made plenty along the way. Now, let's fast forward to today, right? And because yeah. you've progressed a lot, you've flown pretty much everything, helicopters, gliders, planes, whatever. What does your hangar look like now? Um, my hangar's a bit of a mess. I was um, going to say, right? besides a mess. but <laughs> um, Look, I, I think what, what's on the bench right now is um, I've got a quite a large um, Tomahawk Hawk um, that I've just um, picked up a new Jetcat 250 turbine for that I'm, that I'm repowering. Um, I've, um, Are you doing, I've still doing a, a paper round to pay off that? That motor? No, no, no. I'd, oh. I'd, I'd still be doing that paper round. Um, <laughs> um, I've got a PC twenty one turbo prop that that I'm doing some work on with another Jetcat turbo prop on it. And if you looked around the wall, you'd probably find fifteen or oh, ten or fifteen helicopters, about five or ten gliders. Um, you know, things like a Beechcraft Stagger Wing, um, Corsairs, PC twenty ones. You know some sport jets. I've, you know, I've got I've got lots. I've got a couple of scale helicopters, um, and and just I couldn't tell you how many kits. I just, you know, I'd I'd be embarrassed to tell you how many kits I've got that are stacked up both at my place and my dear friend Adrian's house. Um, we actually have a, a shipping container that we hide our sins in, and oh. uh, <laughs> um, we we all the kits that we were going to build and they're all just sitting there that you know I keep thinking when I retire I'll get around to building them, but. Um, but no, it's it's there's there's a there's a my my shed is just full of more work than I can handle, um, and um, you know Adrian sort of knocks me off. He calls me Metalizer Hobbies. I you know I, I carry a fair bit of stuff in stock because I like to get going once I start a project and just keep finishing it. So I'm in the middle of a lot of stuff at the moment, but there's just you know it's a very eclectic collection of all sorts of things. Yeah, and I you know I saw you at the Wang Jets event, so you're pretty big into jets, and I always say all roads lead to jets. You know, no matter where you start, you'll end up getting a jet at some point in time. It seems like that at the moment. What do you love about flying the jets? Well, I, th I think it's just the speed, I suppose, and the sound. I mean, it, there's a, another dear friend of ours, Roy Sparks. It's it's all Royce's fault. I mean, he, um, you know, we were standing at our local club field at, at Parks in Caram Downs here in Melbourne, and uh, and Royce always had this Falcon 120, which was actually designed as a pusher plane, believe it or not. I think it was a 120-size pusher plane. That's right. And uh, he chucked a 10 kilo King Tech on the back of it. And and Adrian and I were standing at the field and he did this low pass past us. And I just looked at him and thought, you've got to be kidding. Like, seriously, how good did that look? And, you know, back in the days when Addy's Hobbies was there and, and Wayne Newman ran it, you know, we um, Adrian and I wandered into him and said, what would it cost? And... Uh, I think it was a princely sum of five thousand dollars for a turbine and a and a Falcon one twenty and all the stuff and you know we looked at each other and swore we were, I wouldn't tell his wife if he didn't tell mine and um, 
and that was a long time, you know, that was a while ago now. But I, I think I think that from as an as an engineer as I am, I think the technology in jets I quite enjoy. Um, you know, they're they're not for the faint-hearted, but they're not necessarily expensive and complex either. You can do sport jets, as you know, in a in a fairly modest way. But um, to me, it's the sound and the speed and the complexity that I like. And and you don't get too many chances to make a mistake and get away with it. You know, a flame out is a is a serious event. You know, a um an out of out of control model is a serious event. Um, you know, there's a there's a degree of complexity around it that says that if you you know, it's You've got you kind of got to be on top of your game to get away with things. But you know, I was one of my you know one of a part of my life is I spent uh, two years living in America a couple of years ago, and um, and I had the joy of flying with you know a number of local clubs and flying events in Canada as well as in the US. And um, you know the jet scene is alive and well in the US. Um, you know they certainly. You know, it's one universal thing is, you know, how we all fly and how we all enjoy our planes. Um, but, you know, there's a very, there's a probably a pretty broader collection of people flying jets in the US than there are in Australia, believe it or not. Like there's just, there seems to be a lot of young kids and a lot of older guys, you know, that still enjoy jets. You know, um, it, it's a very, it's a very broad group. Um, but, you know, it's, they're not for everybody. Um, you know, I keep offering Ian Waters my transmitter because he and I both, Fly mode two. As growing up in New South Wales, we we learned to fly mode two. Mode two, mode of champions, as I like to call it. And there's been a lot of exactly. debate online about it. You know, there's a, yeah. some of these mode oneers are trying to sit there and say, "Oh no, mode two people can't fly." And and I say it's the mode yeah. of champions. And you know, but we know, Carl, I'm a mode two myself. I, yeah, no, I I like it. But the good thing about that for Ian and I is we can swap planes. You know, he can fly my stuff and I can fly his. I certainly can't fly any of my other friends, but I can certainly models with Ian but you know it's I just to get back to your original question what do I like about jets I just think the complexity of them but you know I, I'm, I'm blessed enough to be able to, to be able to you know afford that part of the hobby because you know it, it gets out of control pretty fast if you get the bug would I be correct in saying that you're the type of person that you see something and you fall in love with it and the next minute you have to have it I think that resembles me yeah <laughs> um, <laughs> um, no I don't you know, one of, again, one of the things I, that got me into jets in a big way is I was lucky enough to go to Jet Power, the Jet Power event in Germany, um, um, on two occasions, and and just watching the Europeans fly jets, um, you know, it's taught me a, a lot of things about jets. But it certainly ignited a spark of just looking at stuff and going, "Wow, I wish I could have that." And then, lo and behold, four months later, there's a big dirty red big box in your front door. What's that big orange plane you got? What's it called? Oh, the, uh, it's an aviation design diamond. Um, diamond that's the that's one. Right. That, yeah, that's the space agey looking thing. And and I saw Eric Rantet who designed that. I saw him fly that at Jet Power in 2017. And it's the first time I saw a jet fly with full flap at a, at a speed that I swore would, it would have fallen out of the sky. Like I've never seen a plane fly so slow. And, and watching Eric fly this thing, and the first time I saw it in 2016, I think it was, or 2017, I thought that is the ugliest looking thing I've ever seen. And and I admired the way Eric flew it. And then a year later, I went to the same event again in Germany and um, and, I, and I bought one. Um, and, you know, the Eric and Corinne Rantet, who own Aviation Design in France, they're just some of the, you know, it's just they're just the classic lovely people that are involved in our hobby or sport um, who produce a wonderful product uh, made in Europe and uh, always available for spare parts. 
and you know I think I've got two of their planes I've got a super scorpion um, that I've had for well over 10 years now that has got, had God knows how many hundreds of flights that's one of their planes um, which I think you've fe actually featured on one of your Facebook posts recently oh, I've, um, I've got a lot of your planes that just keep on cropping up yeah so it's and look they're just again that's just some of the wonderful people you bump into as part of part of this whole pastime but but the diamond the diamond is renowned um, for the sound it makes on a high speed pass. Why it's does just, it make that sound? What's oh, I got no idea, mate. I got. I wish you could paint that sound, but it's got a JetCat two twenty in it that, when it's full biscuit on a low pass, just makes a sound that just seems to lift heads. I got no idea why. It's certainly nothing other than a bog stock jet, but off the, of theirs that just I don't know where it comes from. Yeah, so you yeah. sound like you're a bit of a JetCat fan. Yeah, I am, and and only because you know I, I I have I've have a few King Techs, but I've ended up being loyal to JetCat um, simply because of the um, you know the relationship I developed with Peter Agnew and his business was local up in Yarrabah here in Melbourne, and Pete and Shane Bartlett who were there at the time, you know, provided you know a, a great service, and you know I think once I started, and, and you know I don't. I think it's like holding forward back in the old days. I, I don't necessarily believe there's anything different between one and the other. You sort of develop an affinity for the brand and you, you find your way around the ECUs of the jet so you can problem solve them. But, you know, certainly when I went to America and I pulled out all my jets with jet cats in them, everybody looked like looked at me like I had seven heads because the US is very much a king tech market and very much a spectrum market. And I turned up with my Futaba 8NMZ and my jet cat turbines and, you know, they almost didn't know whether to even let me fly. Um, but it's, you know, to me, it's what you get used to, um, you know, and, you know, Kenny does a great job supporting King Tech here in Australia. Pete, when he had Intico running, um, did a great job supporting JetCat. But, you know, my brand preference is, is, is JetCat, remains JetCat now that, you know, Ian Howard and Desert Aircraft have picked up the distribution of JetCat in Australia. I, I can't say how happy I'm about that. I think that's just fantastic. When did that happen? So, yeah, uh, only a couple of weeks ago, actually. That's probably oh. a bit hot, hot off the press. So Howie's well, a, um, is now the JetCat distributor for Australia. Well, and, I've got uh, my JetCat jet motors sitting in Germany at the moment with Mr JetCat looking at it to make sure it's okay. Yeah. Well, look, I have to tell you the service out of JetCat in Germany is, is pretty good. I, I can't say that it always was, but, um, you know, I've had occasion to send motors back for various things and they've come back very promptly and um, – you know, I certainly can't complain about JetCat. And, you know, again, when I lived in the States, JetCat America was just fantastic for me there. Um, so, um, but no, I, I think I, I think I hold the honour of being Ian's first turbine sale, actually. Um, so, um, but yeah, so that's that's good for those of us who, who, who like those pink things. Yeah, um, that's true. But that yeah. was a, a bit yeah. of a concern of mine with my JetCat. You know, what am I going to do? Because... Uh, Peter Agnew shut shop, but um, good news that uh, Ian Howard's got it because um, yeah, he has great yeah. guy, good service. So hope yep. it goes and, well. And for you know, being and Powerbox as well. So you know, they're both products that I use a lot of. Yeah. Okay, so I've covered the jets and uh, um, what about the scale planes and things like that? Have you got are you into those at all, or you know, prop yeah, planes? I am. Um, I'm a I'm, I'm, I'm Adrian Fashman and I and Roy Bucks, who I fly with predominantly. We we're warbird people. Um, and you know, I'd, I'd probably class Adrian as a warbird tragic. Um, so I, 
I have a number of warbirds. I think that my favourite one is, a, is I've got a Corsair with a Moki 180 in it, um, which was my first Moki, um, which was, again, one of those aspirational purchases. I never thought I'd ever be able to afford to buy a Moki, but ended up buying one. Um, and so warbirds is kind of my scale thing. Um, I, you know, I've tried things like DC-3s and biplanes and it just it just hasn't really hasn't really stuck with me. Um, I have a, I have one of those huge Hangar 9 Cubs um, with a big DLE quad 222 in it that I punts around the sky in. But um, I, I think that's the thing about it, Andrew, like with aero modelling. I mean, you just fly anything and everything that takes your fancy. And, and I'm not a particularly good warbird pilot. I mean, warbirds fly well when they're heavy. And I think with a hangar, the... The, you know, with the breadth of mine, I don't spend enough time flying any one particular model enough to get to get super safe with it. So I tend to be very nervous if it's a warbird event and I pull the Corsair out. Um, and you know, I tend to I tend to fly very conservatively um, and probably land it too fast um, and probably make a whole lot of mistakes. But I, I do like my World War Two warbirds. That's kind of my favourite in a in a scale sense. You lead a very busy work life. Yeah. How much time do you have for going out to the field nowadays? Um, look, I, um, I I do have a, a fairly big job. I, I've got a I run a company with about four thousand employees, um, and um, and prior to that, um, I, I used to run a global business. But but I still found time to fly. I found flying was um, was quite a good break from it. Um, I think since I've kind of backed away from administration um, of, the, of the hobby of the sport, it, it's given me more time to fly. Um, I've, you know, and I'm certainly not big noting myself, but I think I think the, the, the amount of time that volunteers give to the administration of the, of the hobby of the sport is, is not always understood by a lot of people. And there's a lot of people with big jobs or even, you know, very time-consuming jobs. It doesn't matter whether, you know, how you define big or not. It's got nothing to do with it. But who give their time freely and selflessly to making sure that clubs operate and state bodies operate and national bodies operate. And, um, you know, and I think those of us who've tried to not only fly a competition but fly socially and then try and help in an administration sense, um, you know, do, do a lot of the silent heavy lifting behind the scenes. Um, so, you know, I've, I've probably had 20 or 30 years of administration um, in various levels throughout the you know, through the various stages of the hobby. And I think that's, you know, I've watched a lot of people selflessly give up a lot of time to administer and not fly. And I think you get to a point where you say, you know what, I, I think it's time to fly. So for me now, it's time to fly, you know. I've, I've, it's now what I do it for rather than, you know, I've, I've done my volunteering for, for a long, long, long time. That's true. Now, I, I, I first came across you when you were involved with the VMAA as president. Yeah. When did yeah. that involvement start? Look, I think, oh, I don't know, when I moved to Melbourne, I suppose, in, I don't know, what it must have been, about 2002 or three or something or other, I ended up as um, president of our local club, um, Parks down at Caram Downs. We were about to lose our field because Eastlink was going in. The Eastlink project had been announced. And at the time, we had a president who was, um, with all respect, probably incapable of dealing with the authorities of Melbourne Water who are our landlords. So I kind of, you know, having a, an eye for business and ability to write a letter, I suppose, I stepped in and ultimately became the president of that club and saved our field, um, which is still there today, adjacent to Eastlink there, um, and got involved with the VMAA 
and ultimately um, was vice president of the VMAA for, for a long period of time under under Murray Ellis, and, and that's where I met people like you know like Greg Lepp and um, you know and, and you know someone like Dave Nichols who you've probably met. You know Dave Dave was the you know the education guy for the VMAA and people like Murray and Greg just you know and myself we spent weekend after weekend after weekend traveling to clubs and doing club visits and. Um, you know, and certainly people like Murray and Greg and Dave did a lot more than I could with with the work commitments that I had. But um, that's how I got involved with the BMAA. Um, as an ordinary committee member, I became vice president and then president, and then ultimately became vice president of the MAAA for a period of time um, under Neil Tank. Um, um, and, and I think probably my when I reflect on that time, I think one thing we did. And you know, all of us have different eras in that period. But I think one of the things that I was most proud of, both in my time on the VMAA and also my time on the MAAA, was our field purchase program. And you know, in my time as president and vice president of the VMAA, we were successful in acquiring you know the Echuca field, um, the Beansdale field, at it, uh, which you've flown at, um, and and you know, on the MAAA council approving fields for, you know, states in South Australia and Western Australia. And, you know, one of my regrets is, particularly as an ex-Novacastrian or, or, or a New South Wales person, is we were never able to quite land a, a field for Sydney in the Sydney Basin because, of, you know, the price of land and, and the complexities of having three associations in New South Wales versus one in every other state. But, you know, I think when I reflect on my time there, I think we, we were good stewards of the money that had been collected over the years. Um, I think we made good decisions about buying land, and I think, you know, the we we have nothing if we don't have fields to fly at. And you know, I'm particularly proud of, of the Bansdale field, which I you know I hand managed through the MAAA council. Um, and you know, it's it, I think if 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 we if we leave nothing but but fields for people to enjoy the hobby or the sport after long after we've fade into irrelevance. I think that's a lasting legacy, particularly for the, you know, in my time when I joined the MAAA and became aware of the, of the funds that had been put in reserve, that no one had really grabbed the bull by the horns and said, well, you know, we've got millions in the bank. What the hell are we doing with it? You know, this was this was taxed by, you know, on the members and it's a surplus and we should be investing it. So, you know, I think that, is it, and I don't have... I don't know much that I that I publicly talk about in my days there, but certainly the the decision to buy land and and have permanent fields, and not you know I have an opinion about whether they should be owned by the state or the national body it doesn't really matter, but as long as they're owned, I think it's just a fantastic legacy. Well, I think it is as well. So I think it's one of the best things that that has happened. That you know, as time goes on, uh, you know, some of our fields, if you know, where we're based in Melbourne here, some of the fields aren't going to survive especially if the, the hobby no. numbers decline and yep i'm going to have to travel a little bit to get to a field but at least i've got that option to travel to a field to go for a fly you know i can't go to the local high school and go for a fly like you used to be able to when you were younger no. and so no. uh, you know if, I, I might have to travel for an hour an hour and a quarter after you know hour and a half might be my closest state field but um but it's at least i'm going to have something so i'm a big supporter of that purchase of land i think it is you're right it's one of the one of the one of the good decisions that have been made, you know, just on where we're at now, um, how do you see the hobby fairing at the moment and some of the challenges that um, 
need to be overcome? Look, I think, you know, my time on the MAAA, we used to spend a lot of time looking at our membership demog- membership demographic. And, you know, I think when I first joined the MAAA Council as the president or vice president of the VMAA, we, I think we had 11 or 12,000 odd members. And, you know, it would be well under 10,000, not well under, but it would be under 10,000 now. Yeah, it is. And I think that the, the challenge was always about how do you attract and retain juniors, how do we increase participation levels, um, you know, and I think there's a, I'm, I'm probably trying not to be controversially, but I think there's a, there's a need to transition from, you know, the, the regimes of the past to the regimes of the future while still have good governance over the, over the hobby. And, you know, I think there's, I think as we shrink, I think we've got to be very thoughtful about, you know, what is our stewardship for the future? Who, who are the, who are the people that are going to follow on? behind the current generation of leaders who are going to be the club officers how do we make administration simple how do we how do we make it easy for people to join the club and you know you know i suppose you know there will be some people who listen to this podcast who probably aren't particular colbies or fans for one reason or another um but but you know i i remember as a 16 year old turning up to a club um in in newcastle a radio control club that i was quite keen to, to fly at and, and just being severely snubbed by the old guys sitting around the table at that club who just didn't want a junior. They just did not want a junior at that club. And and they couldn't have told me to piss off in any more clearer sense. And and I think I had the I did at the at the time I wrote a letter to Airborne and said, you know, it, it's pretty sad when, you know, these when these clubs that are that are consumed by fuddy duddies just do not want to embrace juniors. Um, and you know there was a reaction to that, and I ended up joining that club actually. Um, and and I, and I suppose my passion has always been of just how do you how do you bring juniors into the hobby, and how do you how do you take care of new members? Um, and you know as I think about the hobby, and reflect on you know the club psyche, and you know I, I'm just always conscious of making sure that the clubs are inclusive. That you know the the ta- you know the, the good thing about error modelling. Is we're a very broad church of people that get our passion out of flying planes, and at the end of the day, we fly planes. That's what we do, and we need to make sure that we attract people and make them feel welcome and spend time, you know, instructing and helping and coaching and guiding um, to make sure that there is a, a generation after us, you know. And I, but I think the shrinking numbers will necessarily cause us to review you know, how state associations operate, how clubs operate, how membership systems operate. And, you know, I had the benefit, as I said earlier, of living in the US, you know, where the AMA in the US obviously has a different uh, operating model to the to the MAAA in Australia. And, you know, I saw firsthand how a model operates that I was quite passionate about on the MAAA, that, that is what I've, you know, we loosely termed the federated model, where you know, you effectively direct affiliate with the national body who issues you with your card. And, you know, you effectively have, you know, what's what would be classed as a driver's license. You know, you 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 affiliate with the national body, you get your membership card, your membership card or your membership year is whenever you joined. It's got it's no annual renewal process. And and you join whatever club attracts you, you know, whether it's their facilities or the people or, you know, the camaraderie. And effectively you you display your your federal card as your ability to fly or your you know your insured ability to fly but 
the, the convoluted process of joining through clubs and having clubs have an over treasurers and, you know, all that sort of stuff. They they moved away from that and went to, what you know, what's termed direct affiliation and area representatives, you know, where there was a, you know, I had a representative for Michigan. He looked after Michigan and, and I think uh, Illinois, I think. Um, and, you know, he was the local guy you went to if you had a federal issue, but it was just, it was streamlined because at the end of the day, clubs just couldn't, was, clubs were struggling to put committees together, you know, and, and who wants to do it? Who, it's a thankless task that who wants to do it? And, you know, I've never quite understood this, you know, and I know we set fees and, you know, all that sort of stuff because I've been part of that whole machine. But I just think as we, as I think about error modelling in the future, I think it's got to become easier. I think we've got to adopt technology and I think we've got to, you know, as we often say in business, you know, sacred cows often make the best barbecues. You know, some of these things that that we think that can only be that way. You just have to gently challenge them and just, um, you know, and just and just ad- adapt over time. Well, that's I think um, having a little bit of involvement with the MAAA. Um, I know they've they've just launched their new membership system, and yeah. that and that's a really good move and and opens up the doors for different different ways to interact with them as far as membership. Um, and but I'm a very strong believer that the structure will change and that it needs to change. That an organisation that has fifteen thousand members is very different to one that has six thousand members. And having seen the demographics um, and the numbers, we're heading that way in the next ten to twenty years. That um, a large proportion of our, the membership base is actually going to pass away in the next twenty years. It's going to impact the numbers. And so I'm a big, you know, my parting words when I was at the MAAA AGM presenting the survey findings was, gentlemen, whether you like it or not, you will be forced to change and adapt to the circumstances because the money Correct. will dry up. You will not be able to support the structure that you've got with the revenue that you're generating. So you are going to be forced. And at this point in time, there are, um, and I can say this, you don't need to comment on this, Carl, but there are people that are holding the restructure of the MAAA back through just sheer stubbornness that I have not been shown any business case as to why we should keep the current model. And, and look, Andrew, I, I would say to you that, you know, my time on the MAAA, you know, eight or over years ago, six, seven, eight years ago, I think I left, well, I, I, I had to give up my MAAA vice president's role when I went to America in 2017, I think it was. And, you know, I think amongst us, there were those progressives who knew that things had to change. But I, but having been around the hobby as long as I have, I have enormous respect for organisations like the New South Wales Free Flight Society. I have enormous respect for what they've done at West Wyalong and the Andrew Bryant Field and the investment that they've put in there. You know, they own like they own a thousand acres of land, and sure, it's West Wyalong, but you know, this it's a it's a challenge between sort of racing to the future and and gently and progressively getting there when the people that are still doing a lot of the heavy lifting around the hobby are people who grew up in that environment of, you know, class in New South Wales and New South Wales Free Flight Society and what I remember as ARCAS, which is now Mass New South Wales. And 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 so I, I suppose I kind of straddle both generations, you know, and, and I'm not, I don't feel as a as an ex, you know, bureaucrat in this whole thing that I was particularly tainted by the past or the future, but... You know, I think that I think there is no doubt that a, that the days of states levying their members to run, you know, overhead, 
intensive state bodies for a diminishing um, um, audience are, are sustainable in the future. It's you know, just, I it's think just it's it, right in front it, of us. It, 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 it is, Andrew. But but Andrew, like I think, with all respect, it's it's going to take generational change in leadership. You know, and 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 I think one of the downsides of all hobbies or groups is there are a lot of people that are attracted to positions of perceived power, who who hold on to those positions, um, because they they enjoy being a somebody. You know, and I think we've all met those people. You know, either at the local school PNC or you know put a high vis on someone and watch them turn into a bloody you know instant boss just because they wear a high vis vest. Um, and I think you've got to. You got to walk your way through those people and the people who genuinely have the interests of the hobby at heart. I think at the MAAA level, you know, in my time, you know, and who knows whether I would have ultimately made MAAA president after Neil. I don't know. I, you know, I, I'm not saying that I would have or I wouldn't have. Um, but I think the MAAA president is the most thankless task in, in the entire hobby. Like the work that the MAAA president does for nothing, you know, the hours that's involved at the MAAA, whether you're the vice president or the president. Is just unknown to a whole lot of people, um, but but I think everybody knows that that these overhead heavy, cumbersome administration structures don't survive in a in a, with a shrinking population, you know. And I, and whether that happens in my time or, you know, I, I've certainly have lived in a federated model in the US, and club committees are very compact because they struggle to put club committees together. They you know they um, but having a direct affiliation walking around with your membership card that you produce on request just like you do with a driver's licence you know, or a CAMS licence or any other hobby that we've all been involved in. You know, I used to race motorcycles at an ACU licence, you know. Um, you know, you, you, can have a feder, you can have a federal affiliation and, and join the club of your choice and, and have, but have a voice on a national committee through, through regional representation. And I think we will get... We will get there one it's day. It's going to happen. It, it, there's no choice that it's going to have to happen. Like it, it amazes me in New yeah. South Wales that there are three MAAA affiliated groups there, and they have voting rights, whereas the MAAA president doesn't. But it's in, but it's in the it's in the constitution. Yeah, so you know, the, and, the constitution needs to be rewritten. And the challenge is yeah. that all these organisations are going to have to vote themselves out of existence. Yeah, but here's the challenge, and someone who. You know, anyone from New South Wales who's listening who remembers, you know, I was charged with the responsibility of trying to amalgamate New South Wales when I was the MAAA vice president. And and at the moment, that state has one vote each. Each of the three bodies has one vote each, you know, whereas Victoria had three. And and, and I think, you know, to put it quite plainly, I think there would have been an amalgamation in New South Wales as long as Mass New South Wales won, you know, and, and free flight and control line rolled into Mass New South Wales. Um, and Mass New South Wales is the biggest body. You know, the old Arcas is the biggest body. And Free Flight, you know, are very stoic with the numbers and the control line group are very stoic with the numbers. And, and I know those people very, very well. There's, you know, there are some wonderful, wonderful people who have done an enormous amount for the hobby. And, and I think at the end of the day, you know, I think the challenge for all of us, particularly in, in leadership positions, that you, you can't, blindly wield power because you have a vision that you believe is so compelling that that you bruise people along the way. And I think as certainly as I get older, I, I think and I reflect on my time in administration of the hobby, you know, we we you've got to know when to push and you've got to know when you just got to let things take their natural course. And 
and I think anyone who's who's been to the Nats at West Wyalong and looked at the at the effort that the New South Wales Free Flight Society has gone to to build um, that um, field in West Wyalong, which really could be the Australian equivalent of Muncie, if 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 only we had the vision to build a Muncie. And having been to Muncie in the US, it's it's a it's a mind blowing thing to see a, a national home of of aeromodeling. But you know, there there is a bunch of guys with a vision to build, you know, a Muncie in West Wyalong that is at the centre of Adelaide, Melbourne and Sydney. That and there's guys pouring their hearts into that who who will not be around when the thing finally achieves maturity, who are doing it for the people that follow after them. And and on one hand, you can only admire what they do. On the other hand, you can say, well, does it make sense to have three administration bodies in New South Wales? And you think it probably doesn't make sense. No one can say it actually makes sense, but but does it do any harm? And and you know, I suppose back in the day, I was one of the ones that said, you know, it makes sense to have one body in New South Wales, and I was charged by the MAAA Council with the responsibility of trying to amalgamate it. It didn't actually work, um, and and you know, I got a lot of personal criticism for being the person charged with trying to get that done. But I think when I think when the time is right. The, the people that are there will be able to sift through the logic from the emotion and make the right decisions, you know. The key thing you said earlier, the, the two words that keep on ringing in my head is good governance. Yes. And yes. that is the critical thing for me with any associations. It all comes down to those two words, good governance. And what does good governance look like and what does it represent? And, you know, like I, I said to, to, to the mass throng at the AGM, you will be forced to change because when the free flight membership gets down to 30 members, then what does it look like? How much, how much, um, you know, credence do you give their vote when they're representing 30 people out of 6,000 people as an example? And so something's going to have to change. You got the same problem with Northern Territory and ACT, you know, like it was, it was never a proportional voting system. You know, it was, and, and again, I'm not, I'm not here to say it's perfect. It's not. But at the end of the day, it's it's people who volunteer selflessly in administration roles, so that the hobby can exist and and be administered in some way, shape, or form. And you know, it was never meant to be you know the gerrymander system where you know votes were allocated based on population. Um, you know, because you look at the number of active modellers in the Northern Territory or in Canberra um, versus New South Wales free flight. It's it, it's an interesting debate and. You know, I think there's, I think when you take self-interest away and and you sit back and think about it, and, you know, if, if 15 people or 10 people, which I suppose is what the MAAA Council is ultimately charged with the responsibility of doing, is creating the vision and the plan for the MAAA for the future that says, how do we manage today and how do we set ourselves up for the future? Mm-hmm. And, and in my mind at the time, you know, I was probably controversial enough to, to trigger a lot of the thoughts around a federalised system. But my biggest passion in my time in administration at the national and the, and the state level was about buying land because I just saw that as the most compelling thing. You know, I couldn't, I could in all good governance, look at millions of dollars in the bank for a rainy day um, with no real purpose and, and know that clubs everywhere in the country were losing their fields. And, you know, um, you know, we've all flown at, and darks and, you know, everyone's saying it's a swamp and it's never going to get built out. Well, you know, guess what? You know, population is marching towards and darks at Cadinia. Population is marching to clubs everywhere. You look at Wallen in, 
you know, Northern Victoria and you look at, you know, we are going to get pushed out of town. And, you know, to my mind, in my time in in leadership, it was all about making sure that we owned land. Um, And I think the structure of the organisation is something that, you know, will evolve. You know, there's a new broom uh, through the MAAA, you know, with lots of ideas um, and a lot of passion. Um, I always get a bit wary about people who are very new to the hobby. You know, I've got an MAAA number that starts with 17,000. You know, I go way, 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 way back. Um, And I think, you know, I think the true sign of intelligence, as they say, is the ability to listen to an alternative view and have the courage to change your mind. And I've certainly changed my views over the years. Um, but, you know, we've we've got to, you know, the, we've got to watch what's going on with the organisation and, um, and, and, and let it evolve. But at the same time, we've got to show deep respect for all of those people who have kind of got us to where it is today. And I think that's the, that's the challenge. Um, and, and I look on, I look on all those people who serve freely, and you know, having done it for decades myself, I, you know, I'm, I'm in no hurry to go back there. But um, it, it's a, it's not an easy thing. It's not an easy thing. Um, and you know, you have people who will debate whether we should be sending, you know, our F4C team, our F4C scale team that's just gone to Norway. I think they've just gone to, off to compete, and you know, people wonder if we should be even bothering being part of the FAI and bother being part of, you know, the Sports Aviation Commission and the money that we spend on that. And, you know, the, you know, why do we have an old whole organisation set up for competitors when so few people compete? You know, these are these are big, deep questions that, that, that get asked. Do you know what, though? And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to ask, I'm going to have a chat with the MAAA because I, it's been known, um, uh, Tim Nolan, sent an email out to members and said that I was involved in assisting with the development of a survey through my through my business. And um, I have all the results and I might ask Tim if I can share some of them But because a lot of those questions were asked and you'd be surprised at some of the answers um, yeah. that we got. Yeah. But uh, one little message I do want to say, if the MAAA sends a survey out to you, please fill it out because only a fraction of the membership base does fill it out and, and they're looking at those answers and making decisions on those answers. So all those people that sit in the uh, the peanut gallery, you know, picking on the MAAA or their local associations or clubs, whatever, if anybody sends a survey out, understand that they're looking at a response and that's your opportunity to, to speak up. So, uh, But passion is important. You know, Tim's been aching to be MAAA president for a long time. Aching. He, he wants it. He, you know, and, and if he's driven and passionate and he's... You know, his motives are about the welfare of the MAAA, you know, and more power to it, you know, because it is about passion. You know, I look at Neil Tank and how he got hydraulic into the job as an interim, you know, as a stand-in. And, you know, his stand-in lasted bloody seven years or something. You know, it's there's, it's a thankless task and there's a lot of people who throw rocks. And, you know, it is steeped in history and tradition and there are some questionable things. But what you can't question is in the main the passion of the people involved with a very simple common purpose of flying model airplanes, you know? And and for all the people get themselves wound up, they say, for God's sake, guys, we need to fly bloody model airplanes, you know? And, and we, you know, we need to do it with good governance and we, you know, we need to do it properly and we need to do it lawfully and we need to do it respectfully. And, we, and it's a broad church, you know, from, from anyone who flies a hangar rat who knows what a hangar rat is. Um, and if you don't know, look up what a hangar rat is. Um, Go build a hangar rat and fly it in a basketball stadium, or go fly a, you know, a, a twenty-five thousand dollar turbine jet. We all do the same thing. 
we, we, we practice our religion a different way, but we, we, we all, it's what, it's, it is our, it's, is what gives us joy. And, and, I, and I think the administration has just got to be kept in perspective. That's all I'm saying. Yeah. Well, I always say that uh, no matter what plane I fly, it's got ailerons, elevator, rudder, and a motor. And so for flying Sometimes jet, no motor. Sometimes, yes. That is true. I'm a big fan of the gliders. The, uh, yeah. It's something. So that was a, that was a long topic about administration. I'm sorry about that, but it's just no, that's all right. you know, it's, I think uh, they're, they're big questions. I, I think for me, I don't mind discussing with people that have got some sort of insight because it helps educate other people. And you know, uh, having that discussion informs people a bit more so that they can make better decisions. You know, down the track, and you know, a lot of people aren't aware of how the sport is governed in Australia, what's involved, the effort that are made. There are a lot of people that, like you said, look from afar and speculate what's happening at the other end of the field there and they don't have a clue about how much work is being put in place and how sometimes there's a, something that might seem really simple actually has a lot of complexities along the way. Exactly. And so by discussing it and sharing it, and, and I've spoken to MAAA people about this, you need to communicate better to the members to sell the value of their membership and the work that you do. Like when I interviewed Tyson Dodd and found out about the nine plus insurance policies that we have oh, access yeah, to, I said to Tyson, I've never, I didn't know that. I thought it was just like one yeah. policy. And he goes, no, no, there's different companies doing different things. We work with a broker and every year we're reviewing it and all this kind of stuff. And I said, well, that's like, that is amazing. And, I, and, I, and I'm glad I had him on to talk about that kind of stuff. And I've had Tim Nolan on, which actually a lot of people listen to Tim Nolan's podcast. I think it's the highest second the most second highest listened podcast, I think it was Tim Nolan's around, I think it was second or third, top five at least. But, um, but yeah, so having a chat about that kind of stuff is good. I've had some involvement with um, associations being on committees in, in other sports and it's exactly the same. Like people it's, thought it's, I was an idiot and I was sitting there busting my gut to the point where my wife said, if I ever try to get an association, she's going to leave me because she knows what I'm like. <laughs> It was, it was hours of work because someone, this is what I always say, someone has to do it and you should not take it for granted that you just turn up at the field and things and the grass is cut. Someone had well, to do and it. That, look, that, that's, that's a, you know, the, 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 lawn, the, you know, the mowing fairies, you know, the mowing crew, you know, thank God for retired people who selflessly give up their Wednesday to go mow the field or Friday before the Saturday. I know what the future is though because I had a gentleman on from uh, Canberra and they've got a robotic mower. Yeah. And it goes well, and cuts the strip all the time. And I, I was down, I spoke to my groundskeeper at my club, and I said, robotic mower. I said, stop asking me to be on the mowing roster. You know I've told you I don't have time at the moment. Later on in life, maybe. But just get a robotic mower in the meantime. He goes, oh, no, we can't do that. And I'm like, good. Yeah. <laughs> but, but you know, one of the things that was a feature of the US um, scene was a lot of private, a lot of private <laughs> fields. And, you know, I think there's... You know, I wouldn't be surprised if, if you end up with people who create a cooperative and end up owning their own field, yeah. you know. And, and I think that, you know, there's, there's private airfields for light aviation and, you know, I think they're, they're, you know, if people just choose to opt out is they'll find their own insurance and go and do their own thing, um, which I think would be sad. But, you know, I, I, I think when it all comes down to it, there's a vast bulk of our aero modelling population that simply are MAAA members because of insurance. You know, and, yeah. you know, and insurance is one of the most talked about topics at a club that, you know, particularly when people realise that I was part of the bureaucracy that, you know, what happens about this? And, you know, are you insured if you do that? Are you insured if you do that? And, you know, it was, 
I think when people start to realise a benefit beyond insurance, but pragmatically understand that the fighter club, they need insurance and, and the access to insurance is through their state association. That's when it makes sense. But, you know, when you, and again, back in my day, the insurance component of your entire fee stack was about 55 bucks, you know? So if, if the insurance in the whole stack is 55 bucks, where's the rest going? And, and, and if you've got a great club that charges a good annual fee, it's like a golf club, you know, and green fees. If you, if you, you don't want to join a snooty golf club that provides, you know, whatever level of facilities and your grain fees are $10,000 a year. Well, then pay you $10,000 a year. But if you if that's outside of your reach for whatever reason or you're offended by it, go, go play at a public golf course for whatever dollars around. You know, it's, it doesn't mean people don't enjoy their golf. They just enjoy it through different ways. And I, I, just, I just think it, from my perspective, every state association and the national association has to be visible and accountable to their constituents for where the money's going. And, you know, I think in my time of the MAAA, we always ensured that AGMs and council conferences were open to the public, that state meetings were open to all members, that, that there was no secret society, that, that the accounts did get published. People knew where the money was. People knew what it was getting spent on and be accountable for it. You know, it's... Good the governance. Day, it's, it is good governance. And, you know, I run, I run a public company and, you know, it's, you know, I'm responsible to my shareholders and, you know, what happens to the money. And, you know, I think, I think governance is something that's critical when you're dealing with other people's money. And, and it's not, and it's not, and these roles are not play things for people's egos. They're not. No. And they should never be. No, that's 100% correct. Okay. Let's get back to some aeroplanes, all right? Narrow modeling and, 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 you know, what do you, what does your future in aeromodelling look like? Um, look, I'm, I'm sort of heading towards retirement, Andrew. And, and you know, I think my, my aeromodelling evolution will probably, it's funny that I'm actually heading back to where I started. I'm actually, I have a hankering to start building another control line um, stunter. Um, I, I will probably end up going full circle and going back to control line. Um, I, I love the complexity of my jets. And, and you know, you know how, how involved I am in that whole scene. Um, but one thing that I will be doing more as 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 I get to the twilight of you know of my life is just spending more time at the local club, just flying all sorts of things. And and I and I see you know I was big into helicopters. I flew F three C for a while. I think I think a helicopter will reappear. Um, but you know, I think I think I will just try to fly more. I will try to fly more. But I, I think like all of us, particularly those that are involved in administration, you kind of get a bit burnt out after a while and you need to sort of reset, find what, what floats your boat and get back into it. But I do love building and and I certainly love flying. So it'll be more building and more flying. And I think I think quite honestly, I think if I if I stopped buying planes, I would still I would still have the ability to keep building models for the rest of my life. I've got <laughs> enough kits and shit there to, to keep me going for. Well, I do get my ambitions mixed up with my ability. I always say that we aero modelers have got great vision and we have these visions of, you know, we see a model aeroplane and go, wouldn't it be great to own that plane? Imagine what it would be like to fly it. And we also have that vision to say, I'm going to buy this kit now. I know I'm not going to build it, but I'm going to build it at some point in time when I retire. Yeah. And before yeah. you know it, there's about 50 models just sitting there that need to be built. And then, you know what most retirees say to me? This is the busiest time of my life. I thought I wouldn't have anything to do, and I just I don't have enough time, and I'm just constantly in the shed building. And it's, 
Well, I regret to advise I've got a Bushmaster coming from this oh, aircraft. Um, i got the big 120-inch Bushmaster uh, arriving in a couple of days, and it's just going to get stood up in the corner <laughs> to be started at some point in the queue. Yeah, um, yeah, we've all got yeah. those models. I, you know, I'm busy at the moment with a lot of things, and it's hard for me to get in there. Plus, it's freezing cold at the moment down here in Melbourne, and yeah, it's hard it to is. get out there. But um, Well, anyway, we're up to that final question, the question that everybody wants to know the answer to. And that has that question is what has been your all time favourite model? Um, without doubt, um, it would be my first proper turbine, which is my aviation design Super Scorpion. It it has been, and to this day is my go to plane, and it has been a faultless performer. Um, it has given me enormous amounts of joy. If I if I want to go out there and just wring the neck of something, and and you know, do the old top gun feel the need for speed? I pull that scorpion out, and and I, and it's just it's one of those planes that if you're a bit dusty on the sticks and you need to get something that you know you can rely on that's going to behave properly with a very wide performance envelope, I can't recommend that plane highly enough. And uh, it's it's been around my life for you know probably eight or ten years. Um, it is the airframe is probably starting to get a bit beyond it, but that is my all time favourite. And uh, yeah, I do all sorts of goofy things with it. Um, including pulling wheelies when I land and doing all sorts of stupid things, but it's it's just it's been a wonderful plane and it's flown in Australia and in the US and in Canada um, and I brought it back to Australia and I you know I was quite saddened to hear that they've dropped it now. I think they've got their last production run is in stock and that's it. And I almost bought another one just out of sentimentality. It just it's my all time favourite of of all of them. It's my all time favourite. But that's for my radio model and my control line model. Back in the 80s, I built a SIG Magnum uh, with a uh, uh, an OS60, uh, sorry, a Super Tiger 60 in it, and uh, and I, I painted that uh, with KMB two-part epoxy paint, which took me a, a long time. And remember Brian Ether helped me out with props and things, and um, I, that was that would be my all-time favourite control I played, and I sold it in a in a moment of stupidity. I don't know where it is these days, yeah. um, but I, I I spent hours building that plane, and I would have it back. And, and I've actually got two kits stacked up on the mezzanine floor to to rebuild it. But they would be the two all-time the the planes of my life would be that Sig Magnum and that ST60. But I got I bought it for a guy called Les Mizzen, who uh, I don't know where Les is these days, but he used to be the Super Tiger importer for Australia. And uh, and that uh, Super Scorpion that I bought through Peter Agnew at Interco is uh, it just they, they, those two planes put a smile on my face no matter what. Yeah, well there you go. You've brought back the uh, the double category. Um, you know, a lot of people give me. I've had all sorts of different answers. Uh, some people like to give me their top three. Some people give me their one. Some people create new categories. I'm trying to remember. I think it was Norm Morris or someone's created different categories. So well done, you brought back the uh, the double category. Um, and that's me. Very very valid. So, Carl, really appreciate you joining me on the Flat Out RC podcast. Uh, good to hear your story. That's what I love about this podcast. People that I meet and I don't know their story that well, and it's only in these kind of this this forum that I can find out more. So really appreciate it, and thanks for joining me. Pleasure to talk to you. Thanks, Andrew. About to leave. Already packing, come with me. I'm not really asking. We'll get away to a place where we don't know. Another episode of the Flat Out RC podcast done and dusted. 
big thank you to Carl Bezon for joining me. It was good to have Carl on and uh, discuss a, a few different facets of the hobby. Sometimes they get into political mode in a kind of way. But um, as I said, sometimes it's good to, to talk about things and raise the profile rather than just keeping the secret squirrels behind the scenes. It uh, gets us thinking. And that's all we're trying to do is provoke thought. Uh, and then as a group, we can decide which way our hobby goes. So uh, big thank you to Carl and big thank you to all of you for listening to the Flat Out RC podcast. To those people that send me messages saying that they're enjoying the podcast, really appreciate it. Uh, good to see that some people are listening to the podcast. Uh, not just me when I edit the podcast. I'm honest, I don't listen to the podcast once I've edited them because I actually lived it and then I edited it. And I do edit them. You know, I go through and I, I don't edit out commentary. I just clean sound up and things like that. So if I cut out anything, it's me for talking too much. Anyway, uh, I'll be back next week, hopefully. I've got, I've got I'm trying to find a guest, uh, trying to line up people. It's always a challenge um, to get calendars coordinated so my intention is to be back next week if not get on board with the facebook page and i'll tell you there whether we're on or not but we will be on like always will be on anyway talk soon hope you have a good week and uh keep on enjoying your remodeling get out there go for a fly